Hello to you all and welcome to Viewpoints. Boris Chassain here with you for the next half hour. On today's show, communicating with the unhoused during extreme weather. What lessons were learned from the January 8th snowstorm in downtown Eastside Vancouver? Human beings out looking for other human beings and making sure that they get to a place where they're not going to die. That's really what it comes down to. It's very just, it's like paperwork, email, text messages. There is absolutely no way that that a digital communication plan is getting to people that are unhoused and homeless. Remembering the late Robbie Robertson, Jace Martin talks about the Lifetime Achievement Award that almost never happened. Finally, after 10 years of this going on and going back and forth, Sebastian gets back to me, his son, and very, very bluntly said, Jace, we love you. We appreciate you. Um, he goes, I, I have to tell you that uh, my dad, Robbie, uh, won't come back to Six Nations again until this gets cleared up. And I was like, okay, what's the problem? Now I know there's an obstacle, right? Global warming is not happening and is based on junk science? Well, yes, according to Julian Fell, alternate director for the regional district of Nanaimo's electoral area F. At the risk of offending every true climate believer, I think the whole climate thing is a bit of a fiasco. Welcome to Viewpoints Local News Nationwide. You are on the air with Viewpoints. Follow us on X at Canada LJI. Listen to all our stories on FrequencyNews.ca. So thanks for keeping us company. It would not be the same without you. Our first stop will be in Nanaimo, British Columbia, for some fun facts about climate change. Julian Fell, who's alternate director for the regional district of Nanaimo's electoral area F, recently claimed, and with no apparent shame, that uh, global warming was not happening and is based on what he calls junk science. And he was not talking to himself. In fact, he made that statement on February 13 while the Nanaimo board was debating about developing a regional strategy for zero-net buildings and localized energy generation. Julian Fell went even further by saying, and I quote, I think the whole climate thing is a bit of a fiasco. We've been facing this global warming thing now for 45 years. Dr. Simon Donor, a climate scientist at UBC, takes exception, describing Fell's statement as an old kind of anti-science trope that he's surprised to hear these days. Journalist Mick Sweetman, based in Nanaimo, British Columbia, has that story for us. The regional district of Nanaimo is moving forward with developing a regional strategy for net zero buildings and localized energy generation. Director Julian Fell of the RDN's Electoral Area F, representing Arrington, Coombs and Hilliers, argued against developing the strategy. At the risk of offending every true climate believer, I think the whole climate thing is a bit of a fiasco. We've been facing this global warming thing now for 45 years, and it's not happening. It's based on a belief that CO2 affects the climate by back radiation. That's the backbone of the whole process. That can be debunked very, very quickly. I could go out here in two minutes, show you that back radiation isn't warming anything. I measured the back radiation in my yard. I have a radiation meter and it showed that the radiation has a temperature of minus 32 degrees. That doesn't warm ground. That is 35 degrees hotter. CO2, the emission frequency of CO2 is has a heat content of minus 80 degrees Celsius. That doesn't work. There's some really funny stuff on the internet. 
is constantly repeated. That is just, I can only call it junk science. There's no other reason for it. Jessica Stanley, director for Area A, responded to Fell's comments. Let me just share some of the scientific facts that are just actually very recent. So global sea temperature is higher than ever recorded um, over the past few days. We've hit a full year of temperatures that were 1.5 degrees Celsius above where we said we weren't supposed to be. Atmospheric carbon dioxide just dumped four. Um, Director uh, Stanley, I, I don't want to go back into a back and forth. So um, if you have any questions about- Well, I'm gonna, I'm arguing why I'm in support of this. And I think that having the science is important. So if we're gonna hear that climate change isn't real, then I think we should hear the evidence that says that, that you know, clearly across the board, we've got multiple areas of, you know, impacts that I don't think we can or should be denied. Simon Donner is a climate scientist and a professor at the University of British Columbia. I spoke with him over the phone. I smiled when I got your email because what the regional director said is an old kind of anti-science trope that I'm surprised to even hear today. It's the sort of thing somebody would read online that goes against basic principles of physics. Donner says that fellow is failing to account for the different types of heat that contribute to climate change. You can't make sense of the greenhouse effect just by taking the measurement of the temperature of different things, because there's more than one way in which energy is transmitted. It's not only based on the temperature of something influencing how much energy is radiated. It's also influenced on the movement of air and the heating of air, what we call in the science sensible and latent heat. His conclusion is based on an incomplete energy budget. It would be like trying to like balance your budget without accounting for everything that you're spending and all the money you're making. Donner says that he has heard politicians making similar arguments before. It's really old school cognitive dissonance, to use the term from psychology, is that, you know, when we don't want to take an action. We often, rather than arguing about the specifics of the action, we go back and argue against the reason you would do it. It's sort of like your parents saying, hey, could you take the garbage out? And then you saying, I don't think the garbage is even full. Dr. Eric Krogh, an environmental science professor from Vancouver Island University, says carbon emissions are a key contributor to climate change. The connection between greenhouse gases and global warming is that those gases absorb those outgoing heat waves and then they radiate it back in all directions. Some of those come back down to Earth. Some of those are destined for outer space. Some move horizontally in the atmosphere. So that back radiation is referring to, I believe that this individual is referring to the amount of that IR that's coming back down to Earth as opposed to escaping out into outer space. That is a core component of the mechanism of, of increased temperatures, both in the troposphere as well as the Earth itself. Donner says the RDN is right to look at developing strategies to reduce the emissions of new buildings. Figuring out how we're going to make our buildings more efficient and to stop relying on natural gas and shifting to electricity for heating is not only you know the solution for reducing emissions in the region, they're also just good ideas anyway. Next time we get a big heat wave, if we've shifted to electricity for heating, guess what you also get when you install electric heating? You also get electric cooling. Krogh says the local governments need to take action to help reduce emissions. We have to stop ignoring climate change and start addressing it. The counter arguments are that these can be more expensive investments up front, but I can only imagine that they're orders of magnitude many times cheaper than dealing with the full cost of climate change if we continue to ignore it. The RDM board voted to develop a strategy for net zero buildings and localized energy generation with directors Fell, Ian Thorpe, and Leanne Wallace opposed. This is Mick Sweetman.
follow us on X at Canada LJI and listen to all our stories on frequencynews.ca. Climate change to music from BC to Ontario. When renowned and influential musician, songwriter, film composer, and actor Robbie Robertson was given his Lifetime Achievement Award from Six Nations in October of 2017, what most people didn't know was that there had been a problem that almost cuddled the plan. Six Nations songwriter, artist, manager, and performer Jace Martin wanted to honor the late Robertson for years only to be told that Robbie would never return to Six Nations unless a problem was dealt with. Which one? Well, in an exclusive interview with David Moses in Oshawakin, Ontario, Jace Martin shares this fascinating story for the first time about how Robbie Robertson's Lifetime Achievement Award almost never happened. This is part four of a series remembering Robertson's return to his roots in Six Nations. Here is part of David's conversation with Jace Martin about his involvement with uh, bringing Robbie Robertson to Six Nations for his Lifetime Achievement Award back in 2017. At what stage did you get involved and how did you get involved with that idea to bring Robbie back to give him a lifetime achievement? Right. Six Nations. Well, it, it was uh, it had to grow into that idea. Right. You know, usually and this is a great life point, like for anybody listening, you just have to start. Mm-hmm. You have a dream. Right. You just have to start because it will always unfold into something bigger. Like the vision will continue to expand as you meet your goals, as you hmm. get progress in it. And so that's, that's what this is. This story is so great. And I'm so glad that you asked me to do this because um, ever since uh, Robbie passed, he's one of my greatest mentors. We became good friends at the end. Um, he was a big supporter of ours. He came on the Harvin J show for us for Bell TV, which is amazing. So we have that. Um, actual live video footage of us talking. Um, But yeah, like uh, he was a great supporter of mine. And he was, even before he passed, he did the Harvin Jace thing. He was like, Jace, I'm coming back there. I'm coming back in your studio. Don't worry, I'm coming back. Great. And uh, we never got a chance to do it, but it it meant so much to me. But uh, I'm going to tell you, it took 10 years. It took 10 years. Yeah. I started, you know, uh, I was the artistic director for the Six Nations Music Festival, Mm -hmm. the concert for a cure that happened for 10 years. And we bring people like Johnny Lang and like the fabulous Thunderbirds, all these people. So we always had these big dreams and big visions. And um, we were so fortunate to be able to pull these big things off, you know. I mean, we had almost like 5,000 people at Chiefswood Park when Johnny Lang was here. And I, I could not believe that, like... Again, like this is stuff that when I was younger, we were talking about when I was younger, um, what it takes in the music business, like to have these, like these big dreams. And I was always wondering why these, cause there was these festivals. I had to get hired to go away. Like, why aren't there festivals here? Right. The, mm. That's the reason I brought that music festival here. And like, and then the, one of my questions was after that was like, why does six nations not celebrate Robbie Robertson? You know, like they should. That was always deep in in my spirit as I was growing up. I said, like, he's, like, literally, the he's made it to the highest peaks of music, you know, the most celebrated, amazing artist in the history, wrote some of the most iconic, lasting songs in the world, you know? Like, so it was always like, why don't we celebrate him more? Like, why don't we talk about him more? Why is nobody, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, we should be proud of it. There should yeah. be, like, a poster, the home of Robbie Roberts <laughs> yeah, and stuff right. like that. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. always, I yeah. always was in my heart, right? So... 
So naturally, when I'm doing the concert for Cure, the first concert I did, I reached out to him and his team. No response. Mm-hmm. Second year, reached out. No response. Third year, reached out. You know, um, then I started to get a little bit of responses like, you know, we're getting messages from you constantly. Mm-hmm. And, and um, it's, but they were being very um, diplomatic about it. They're saying, oh, it's, he's not available. He's busy, blah, blah, blah. So that, go, that this goes on for years and years and years. But I'm, pers- I'm persistent. And when I want something, I believe I can make it happen. So then I started to change my thing. I just, I just said, you know, like, um, we want Robbie to come and we just want to celebrate him. We, he doesn't have to sing. We don't want anything from him. We just want him to show up. So we can celebrate him and honor him the way Six Nations is supposed to. Mm-hmm. And um, I said, we'll pay for everything. Whatever you tell me what it, what it costs, we'll pay for every everything, every cost. And I said, we'll, we'll come up with a fee. He doesn't have to sing or nothing. You know what I mean? Like So I, I started to scale down the vision of what I wanted when we brought him. I want to make it as easy and, and um, as possible on him, you know? And so... I think that started to get into the the management's mind and I took it to Robbie. Um, and I actually reached out to his son, Sebastian too. Mm. Finally, after 10 years of this going on and going back and forth, Sebastian gets back to me, his son. And very, very bluntly said, Jace, we love you. We appreciate you. Um, the work you're trying to do. And we, we get messages from you every year. You know, she said, but he goes, I, I have to tell you that uh, my dad, Robbie, uh, won't come back to Six Nations again until this gets cleared up. And I was like, okay, what's the problem? Now I know there's an obstacle, right? right, right. And I'm a problem solver. So I was like, okay, there's an obstacle. What's the obstacle? He said, well, my dad is really wants his status back his status his status card membership because he lost it when his mom married off the reserve in 85 yeah so i didn't know this so you guys are hearing this like exclusively like i never told this story and like i really have been thinking i need to share this story because robbie is not here but this is a like a legacy story for six nations it's a part of who we are so i i'm so glad to to be able to share this now, this is the first time I get to share this. But um, as soon as I heard that there, there was this obstacle, I was like, wow. So I asked Sebastian, I said, can I take this information and can I start the process on Robbie's behalf to make this happen? Mm. And I didn't even know what to do. I didn't know how to do it, but I knew I knew the chief, Ava, at the time, uh, Ava Hill, a great friend of mine, great supporter of mine. So Sebastian gave me his blessing. He said, on behalf of Robbie and our family, like, you're allowed to do it on our behalf. So nice. whatever you need to do, like, you have our permission, right? So I was like, yes. So I got that. I got that. <laughs> that go ahead, you know, from Robbie and his family. So I went right to, um, Ava, I went, I set up a meeting with the chief and, um, you know how I get so excited. I'm like, Whoa, we're so close. We can do this, you know, but there's still obstacles. Right. So I sit with Ava and I know she was amazing. And I, so I told her what had to happen and I I didn't really ask. I said, we have to do this. This there's like an injustice that happened to Robbie. And it's something that has affected him since and not only him, but his kids now. So there's, there's like yeah. this disconnect sure. from Six Nations now. Yeah. And I said, we need to rectify this because it, it's it wasn't his fault. And it's hurting him, obviously, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, why would he even bring it up? Why would he even say exactly, it, you know? Right. Um, so uh, she understood the severity of it. Um, she started to uh, put me in touch with and, and support, like, the membership um, genealogy of tracking down yeah. um, his information to yeah. be— to. Yeah 
to get his status card re, 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 um, back to him, um, which was a, an unbelievable process. And it's so funny because um, people at membership, they were like jumping. You know, they don't really do that. You have to provide the information. Right. You yeah, have to yeah, bring yeah. in the right. birth certificates. You yeah. have to bring in the death certificates. Right. You have to prove where they were born and the doctors and all. Like, oh, it was so crazy. She yeah. like, But the, the people at membership and Ava, they were just, they were working so hard for this because I don't know what it was. There was just this blessing on it like mm -hmm. there was just this excitement and energy over wow we're part of something that's bigger than us you know it's mm -hmm. not just a day-to-day -day typical status card thing you know yeah. so we could all feel it well yes we did pull that trick on you sorry about that want to know what happened next the rest of this 30-minute interview can be found on frequencynews.ca listen to david moses and jace martin go at it for 24 more minutes it's part of a four-part series where david reminisces with community members about the return of robbie robertson's two six nations in 1996 Listen to the previous four parts in part one. Uh, David Moses presents a 1996 interview with Robbie Robertson, done with Elaine Bombery on CKRZ Radio. That interview continues on in part two, where Robbie Robertson says he thinks he's related to half the Six Nations Reserve. And in part three, local musician Derek Miller shares memories of jamming with the late Robbie Robertson. Thanks to David Moses for this great retrospective of that special moment moment in musical history. You're listening to Viewpoints with Boris Sasang. Do you have questions or comments? Our email is radio at frequencynews.ca. So spring is around the corner in Vancouver and there have been many weather changes since the severe snowfall of January 8th when the temperatures plummeted and a record-setting 27 centimeters of snow blanketed the city. Schools were even closed for three days. In the downtown east side during that record-setting snowfall, several of those unhoused were left out in the cold, unable to access shelters or warming centers. Though that extreme weather event has now passed, the community supporting the unhoused still talks about what went wrong and what needs to be done to ensure that the city's most vulnerable are better protected next time around. So, Vancouver-based journalist Bernadine Fox uh, took a look at what the problems were during that dangerous weather event and talked to people who work with the unhoused to see what the city needs to do to take care of these vulnerable citizens when extreme weather happens again. Bernadine reached out to Amanda Burroughs, who works at First United, an organization that has provided and advocated for services for the unhoused in the downtown east side for the last 140 years. This interview was conducted just a few days after the January 8 snowfall. You know, we always know we have one or two really cold snaps a year. There's always a scramble trying to find extra shelter space, extra warming centers. There's a lack of resources, a lack of coordination, and a lack of communication. Feels like that's every year. But this year, there was that and this only thing I could describe is this layer of apathy um, that just didn't seem like it mattered as much. And so it was up to, you know, um, grassroots groups, service providers, 
doing the outreach, you know, walking around the streets, making sure that people were warm enough. And this has been going on, it feels like about eight days, not just with the snow, but when it was minus 18. There's always a percentage of people who don't make it into shelters or warming centers. Uh, what happens to them? Uh, shelters are often 100% at capacity, even when it isn't an extreme cold weather like it is now. Uh, and so that's an issue too with having quantity. And the warming center issue is a different one when it comes up, when the city does their extreme weather response, these warming centers. So there's a few in the downtown east side that were opened up for the last few days. Uh, but a lot of people don't know where they are or where, you know, where to go. So there's always this communication issue that we're struggling with down here. So even if you do open these places, the city coordinates with organizations to open them. Not many people know, often don't know where they are, uh, and uh, but they only stay open for a few days. And when this extreme weather ends, Today or tomorrow, those places will be closed. Amanda Burrell says that it's critical that the city have a preparedness plan, which has communicated clearly to the people being affected by an extreme weather event. The Pulse reached out to the city to find out what their plan consisted of. They did not agree to an interview, but sent an email outlining these points. They increased capacities at shelters and also opened additional warming centers that allowed pets, bikes, carts, and offered snacks and warm beverages. Alerts, they said, were sent out to service providers, outreach teams, TransLink, and other partners, including the VPD, who can, quote, tell people that there are places to come inside and get warm, end of quote. And they had information on their shelter and winter response strategy webpage. All of this information was disseminated via emails and a website. To try and track down exactly how unhoused people would be informed, the city directed us to Homelessness Services Association. Chloe Good, their project and program lead, explained that 527 points of contact get the alert, which they believe are then passed along to their networks and programs. But when asked who specifically was tasked with ensuring the unhoused are able to access this digital information, we were told that alerts included a poster to be posted onto windows. We went back to Amanda Burroughs to ask her what her experience was on the ground. What type of communication stream do they use to let people know about the shelters that are available? How do they do that? Uh, yeah, so there's the 211 number. So you can call 211 and, and hear about capacity and where they are. And, you know, we do have to also, as service providers and organizers, you know, bear responsibility too in, in getting out communication. So, you know, there's no Wi-Fi community either. So if there was some sort of, you know, tech response, uh, we don't have the infrastructure to do that and mobilize that. It, it really is boots on the ground going around um, mm-hmm. and having dialogue with people. Downtown inside, that is not the case. It's not, um, A, it's always hard to find Wi-Fi and B, not everybody has a phone or access to it. I was wondering whether or not there was some communication style that was being developed that would suit that to make sure that everybody knows about it. But from what I'm hearing from you, it really is people with boots on the street letting people know. That's true. And if there is something being arranged right now, I'm not aware of it. That was Amanda Burroughs from First United Church. One of the people who also had boots on the ground that night was Sarah Blythe, executive director of the Overdose Prevention Society. She talked to us about what she saw on that cold winter night and the communications that she says didn't happen effectively. Uh, I think it was a confusing situation where better communication with the actual people that 
are homeless and they don't sometimes see the news. They don't even know that the winter cold weather is coming or what, how, you know, where to prepare. Uh, they don't, they have limited outreach. I know that um, the Homelessness Services Association of BC sends out like 500 and some alerts. Um, how do those alerts get to the unhoused so that they can use that information? I do see emails that come to me that I can print out paperwork and put it up and hand it out at our overdose prevention sites. Mm-hmm. But again, it, like things change. Some shelters are open on some nights, some are um, open on other nights. People, it's it's a fairly confusing just even for me to look at and figure out, let alone handing it out and, and for homeless to sort of figure out it, what what's going on night to night. Only it's just bodies, human beings out looking for other human beings and making sure that they get to a place where they're not going to die. That's really what it comes down to. It's very just, it's like paperwork, email, text messages, all of that isn't equal to human beings going on the front lines and looking for other human beings that are uh, laying out there in the cold um, and making sure that they get somewhere safe. Mm-hmm. There is absolutely no way that that a digital communication plan is getting to people that are unhoused and homeless, the ones that are in the downtown east side, at least. Um, because a lot of people don't have internet. They don't have, uh, you know, they have phones sometimes when they have data. Um, Ken Sims put out a tweet that said, uh, you know, it was, it was directed to the unhoused. It said, mm-hmm. we care about you. These are the warming centers. Come in and get warm. But it's a tweet. It's online. Mm-hmm. What percentage of the population of the unhoused in the downtown east side would have? No one saw to... that. No one. I'm saw sure that. no one saw that. So the city has an outreach team. Were they were they open that night, or what do they do? I don't know who they are. I haven't seen them. I don't mm-hmm. know what they're doing. I you know I imagine um, some of them are coming out of Carnegie. But I don't see who they are. They haven't introduced themselves to me. That was Sarah Blythe from the Overdose Prevention Society. The Pulse discussed these difficulties with City of Vancouver Councillor Cynthia Boyle. We described the shortcomings that Amanda Burroughs and Sarah Blythe talked about and our own research when we contacted the city. Boyle said that the downtown east side should be a priority around free public Wi-Fi because, as she said, during the heat dome, unsurprisingly, we saw the same thing about these important health and safety issues. She also said that the city's outreach team are their boots on the ground. This spring, Councillor Boyle is planning to bring the topic of free Wi-Fi in the downtown east side up to city council. We attempted several times to reach out to the city's outreach team in the downtown east side, and at the time this story is going to air, we have not received a response from them. What is clear is that the city developed a preparedness plan to provide services to the unhoused during the latest extreme weather event that was based on a form of communication the unhoused have little to no access There will be further life-threatening events, including extreme cold or heat and medical emergencies, and the question remains if the city will modify their communication plan in the future or if the unhoused will continue to be left in the dark and out in the cold. This is Bernadine Fox reporting for FrequencyNews.ca with funding by the Local Journalism Initiative, a program of the Department of Canadian Heritage, and distributed by the Community Radio Fund of Canada. 
that's it for us at Viewpoints. Thanks to our journalists David Moses, Bernadine Fox and Mick Sweetman, to our national editors Victoria Fenner and Maureen McEwen. Viewpoints is produced by the Community Radio Fund of Canada. I'm Boris Chassain, your host and producer. Thanks for being with us again this week and until the next, ciao.